0: Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. My guest tonight is uh, Pedro Nogueira, who is a distinguished professor of education at the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. His work focuses on ways in which schools are influenced by economic conditions as well as by demographic trends in local, regional, and global contexts. He's written many, many books, most recently Race, Equity, and Education, The Pursuit of Equity in Education 60 Years After Brown, and he's published more than 200 articles and monographs. Prior to joining the faculty at UCLA, he was a tenured professor and holder of an endowed chair at New York University. Harvard University, and the University of California at Berkeley, I'm really sort of in awe of uh, Pedro. Uh, he has a PhD in sociology from uh, University of Berkeley, uh, California at Berkeley, an MA in sociology from Brown, and a BA in sociology and American history from Brown as well as teaching credentials. Highly educated, very erudite, and he has worked with an incredible team to produce this amazing book that he will be signing tonight after our conversation. And uh, I was daunted when I saw this, because I thought, wow, it's a bit like War and Peace. But once you start, I have to say, uh, it just sucks you right in. So congratulations on the book. <laughs> <laughs> I want to start by by saying, for a lot of us, maybe not so much of people in this room, but let's say globally, the idea of a crisis of connection is something kind of new Mm. to us. I mean, we think about more recently how this idea of lack of intimacy and the crisis of connection uh, is coming fairly directly out of the the tough discourse that's going on in the socio-political atmosphere that we're in. But having read this book now, it's pretty clear to me that this crisis is really very deeply embedded in the human condition and has been for a long, long time. So I guess my question, my sp- first question is, what was the driving force of pulling this together now? How long did it take you and your team to, uh, to pull all this together?
1: So thanks, Terry, and thanks to the parish and to the Bridgehampton uh, Childcare Center for sponsoring this. I worked with uh, my colleagues, uh, Niobe Way and Carol Gilligan and uh, Alicia Lee uh, on a project. We called it the Project for the Advancement of our Common Humanity. And we engaged a bunch of scholars and artists and activists, from, mostly from the New York area, but beyond as well, because what we recognized is that not only is the society increasingly uh, literally falling apart, you know, and, and I can you know, you see rising suicide rates among all groups in this country, the mass shootings. These are the things that we are learning increasingly to live with, And we said, you know, we can't just watch and act like this is normal, that we have to have another way of responding that begins to build bridges between people based on our common interest, our common human interest. And so it was envisioned as a project, not simply as a book project, Mm -hmm. but as more of an active project to bring people across different fields together to undertake common projects together, and and that's how this was born. And and that work is continuing. It's mostly continuing on college campuses. Some of you may know, but across the country right now, there's a a mental health crisis on our college campuses. Large numbers of young people who are depressed, anxious, do well academically, can't perform, because they simply don't have the psychological resources to perform. So we're seeing this, it, it, it takes many different forms, and as you said, it's not a new issue. Philosophers and social science have been writing about it for, since the 19th century uh, as a kind of a byproduct of modern society, where we become increasingly isolated, increasingly alienated, and I would say that our smartphones make it worse, and that's the trend that we've been seeing, not just in America, we're seeing it in many countries across mm-hmm. the world.
0: The, uh, the book is structured in a, in a really interesting way. It's, it's, uh, it's this idea of the five stories, the five chapters, the five elements that all come together to create and a way for you to explore this, the whole nature of the crisis of connection. So, uh, you know, your, your first part one is, is really talking about human nature. And then secondly, we talk about the roots of this crisis and then the crisis itself and then moving on in the book to the consequences of this crisis and then solutions. So let's start with the first phase. I mean, human nature is what?
1: So we've been taught, especially I think Americans been taught the idea of that humans are innately individualistic, that we are the rugged individual, that it's survival of the fittest, the kind of Darwinian notion about how humans uh, operate in the world. And that is, I think, at odds with what several primatologists and archaeologists have said has, in fact, made it possible for human beings to survive. Sarah Hurdy, for example, has been writing a lot about early humans and said, you know, if it wasn't for altruism, humans wouldn't exist. If, <laughs> if humans didn't look out for each other, if we didn't look out for our children, if we didn't look out for the elderly, we would have ceased to exist as a species. Mm-hmm. And what that suggests is that rather than it being each person for themselves, that the key to our future as is what it's always been. It's coming together around common interests and taking care of the weak, taking care of the vulnerable. But that message, I think, competes with the other narrative, which is also very powerful um, and influential. And, we, and I would say it's the one that has most of the influence right now. Mm-hmm.
0: And so what's the root? cause of this crisis of connection, if we are hardwired that they were born to be part of a community, to be empathetic, to have feelings and be able to express them, to want to have empathy, to want to help, how do we get from that place to this crisis?
1: So in the past, and not so distant past, we had civic organizations that held us together, little leagues, bowling clubs. Uh, We had neighborhood groups, churches, that held societies together. And what we're seeing is now, those kinds of civic organizations, including public spaces like museums, increasingly not serving in the same way as the bridge to bond people to one another. And as those bonds weaken, then we treat to either to our tribes, right, the groups we think we identify with, or to ourselves. Over half of Americans now live by themselves, mm-hmm. and at a time when over half of Americans are 65 or older, that's a real problem, because many of us know there are a lot of older people who can't live by themselves, mm-hmm. shouldn't live by themselves, mm-hmm. but uh, that's the kind of society we increasingly live in.
0: So the crisis in, in and of itself, the nut of the, uh, the conversation, in a lot of the um, essays that I read, it has to do with socialization, cultural stereotypes, the things that, uh, that we're experiencing that drive us apart. And it seems like in some ways, there's some reference to the crisis of connection being almost like a condition, mm-hmm. like myopia or arthritis that could potentially be treated. So where are we going with this crisis? I mean, how much real activity is there ha- taking place in the world to try to address it?
1: Not enough, uh, not enough. I would say that the trend is toward greater fragmentation, atomization, more isolation. We see walls being built <laughs> to keep people out, uh, not just here, we see it in Europe. Uh, we see, and, and if you think about it, just the wall, if this economy uh, that we're in, the Hamptons, were to lose immigrants, it wouldn't survive. Mm-hmm. Right? It's mm-hmm. dependent on immigrant mm-hmm. labor. And so we have an irrational conversation about who should be here, who should not be here, what does it take to sustain a community, a society? We dr- we're driven by our fears, not by our recognition of mutual needs. Mm-hmm. And so what that does, it prevents us from solving problems that affect all of us. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of my colleagues did a book about a, it's called Heat Wave. It was about a, a very uh, period of very high temperatures in Chicago. And during that period, many old, older people died. Uh, and, and he studied the deaths. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, it turned out, yeah, older people died, but not all old people died. The old people who died were the old people who were isolated because no one was there to take them outside and let them know mm-hmm. mom needs some fresh air. Those who lived with family survived mm-hmm. because they had the care and the support. And so even something as it might seem as objective as dying from the heat is not, is conditioned by our social circumstances. And, and I think if we keep that in mind, then we realize, well, people still need people. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a tendency that when we see problems, say, like the mass shootings, after a while, they become so frequent, so disturbing, that we'd rather just turn it off and just hope it'll go away mm-hmm. or hope it doesn't happen to us rather than to recognize, no, that, that that's not the solution because it is so random, it could happen anywhere, literally. A school, a church, a movie theater. Uh, we've seen it happen in all those places. And so the tendency is to think, well, maybe I should just lock myself off, don't trust my neighbors, get a gun, isolate myself, when in fact, the answer is the opposite. Right.
0: And that does bring me to the the, you know, the, uh, the aspect, which is the consequences of this crisis of connection is the kind of things that you're talking about. But I think that generally speaking, most of us don't actually realize that it's a quid pro quo. That's right. And that's... that how does one address the fact that no one, you know, it's like if you don't have the very basic elements of what it means to be human, if you are locking yourself away, getting a gun to protect yourself, you have no empathy, you have no connection, you're culturally inculcated to act a certain way, and there are a lot of uh, discussions in the book about the nature of of boys and girls and what happens when they become women and men. Uh, which is so much of that is so deeply ingrained in the cultural stereotypes, it's almost impossible to break them open. And and so we understand that there's a high rate of uh, suicide and that old people are dying because they're in their houses alone when there's a heat wave, um, which happened in France a couple of years ago too. But We haven't made the connection between what's happening with young people in schools and in their communities and what happens later on.
1: Right. So, And and that, I think, raises the point that we have to be intentional about teaching things to children, like empathy, for example, (laughs) right? The importance of being kind and being thoughtful to others. Interestingly, Japan has been explicitly teaching children empathy for many years now.
0: How do you do that?
1: You you teach things like sharing. <laughs> you teach things like the importance of uh, checking in with another person. Mm-hmm. There, there's a great you can see this on on, on YouTube a, a video of a child who's lost their grandparent, and they come back to school uh, after being away for a few days, and the teacher has the other children welcome that child back, and talk and they talk about death, or what it means to lose a relative and the whole class is crying, and the teacher's crying, but it's a, an acknowledgement mm. that we can't just act like nothing happened. We have to acknowledge each other during that moment. I point out to people that during moments of crisis, we recognize our humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in the Bay Area during the Loma Prieta earthquake. Those of you who remember, uh, the giants were playing the A's, and, <laughs> and it was a big deal if you were in the Bay Area. And we had this major earthquake, and literally the Bay Bridge, part of it collapsed. The Cypress structure also collapsed. Many people were trapped in their cars. That Cypress structure, that Cypress freeway, was located right next to the housing projects in West Oakland. Mm. The first people to scale the, the, the freeway to rescue people were the people who lived in those projects. As they freed people from their cars, risking their own lives, they didn't stop to say, well, what color are you, or what religion, or gender. They just freed whoever needed help. And over and over again, what we see is during moments of crisis, people rise beyond those differences to help. The problem is when the crisis abates, then we go back (laughs) to the old way.
0: And you see that in almost every time there is an international crisis of any kind. It's the, you know, outpouring of sometimes very misguided empathy. Uh, I'll send you, uh, you know, 500,000 stuffed teddy bears when what you really need is, uh, you know, bottled water. Um, uh, you know, and it's a bit chaotic, but there is there is this human impetus to you know to try to reach out to care, uh, and and it does dissipate. It you it know, does. so how do you how do, I mean I guess you could go on YouTube and learn how to keep it going, <laughs> but um, how do you get people when they're young to break away from this cycle?
1: Yeah, I think that if you if we were for example to include something like community service, into the work of schools. Um, going back to Japan again, Japan, the children clean up their classrooms themselves. They don't mm-hmm. rely on a custodian to clean up. So it instills a, not only a sense of responsibility, but collective re- responsibility. If you build into the work of education uh, those kinds of uh, values, and, and I have to say, you know, we, we live in a country where we, we value secularism. I, I certainly do. But secularism doesn't mean they can't be morals. They can't be... Uh, um, and in, uh, uh, you know, If we don't raise children with a, a sense of respect for who they are and respect for others, then we end up in a society where we will turn on each other. And so I think we have to be much more deliberate about doing that. There are schools that do, uh, not nearly enough. And I think that now there's a, a, a tendency to shy away from explicitly teaching values. Uh, but when you see, you know, right now, there's been there's a lot of attention to it—the rise in bullying in schools, mm. which has taken off particularly because of social media, where kids can be bullied and, and will say very mean things because they can get away with it, with the anonymity of social media, that you have to, you don't just counter it by putting punishments in place. You have to counter it by actually teaching kids another way of, of treating each other. And that has to be modeled, that has to be uh, reinforced consistently.
0: Well, education, of course, is your ma- major area of expertise, and I'm sure that you've been engaged with or read about a lot of different types of uh, activities, programs, plans that are you know, being put in place to try to address some of this. Can you talk about some of the ones that you think have been super successful?
1: Sure. So, you know, I work, um, I live in Los Angeles now, and I work with a school there in a very poor neighborhood. It's a neighborhood surrounded by gangs, so it's got lots of social problems, but the school has not had a fight in over seven years. It's a school that has one of the highest graduation rates in Los Angeles, despite the fact that all the kids are very poor. Most of the kids don't speak English as their first language. It is the only school in Los Angeles where the students evaluate their teachers and give them feedback. And when I visited the school, I was so struck. by I said, well, how do you manage to avoid fights? He says, well, we require kids to come three days before school starts so we can get to know each other, and we build community. I said, how do you get them to come? He said, we just tell them they have to. And, they come, <laughs> right? and so we consciously build community. We reinforce that, and our teachers are actively involved in building relationships with the students. And so I talked to the teachers. I said, what's it like to work at? And said, it's, it's a great. This is a place that very little attrition. Teachers want to work there. I said, what's the hardest thing about working here? He said, the feedback from the kids, because they tell us what they think. <laughs> Then I met with some kids, and I said, well, um, what's it like to go to school here? They said, well, it's like a family. Mm. You know, we all support each other. I said, well, let me ask you this. I said, how often are you inspired by what you learn? Several kids shut up the and said, I'm inspired every day. I said, I don't believe you. I go to too many schools. <laughs> I said, Tell me what did you learn yesterday? The girl said, yesterday we learned about eugenics in biology and that there were a common practice in the 1930s of sterilizing women uh, who that were, didn't want to have children. And I was so disturbed, I went home and told my father about it, and we studied it for another two hours. When kids get a good education, they want more education. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, And that is not a function of their economic background. That's a function of the opportunity to learn. When you build a community like that, where kids feel respected and appreciated, they respond. And that's what I've seen over and over again. It's not just in that community. I can name several others, including here in New York.
0: One of the things that uh, is talked about a lot in the book, as it relates to you know education and children in this crisis of what happens from boyhood and girlhood to you know adolescence and then adulthood, and everything seemed to point to this kind of one place, which is described as the crossroad in development of where the natural tendency towards you know empathy and interest and quest for knowledge comes up against the, the cultural stereotypical norms that makes it so that little girls say for example who when they're you know, uh, in the single digits or as you described people who will give you the feedback who will, you know, who know what they know and know what they feel and then by the time they turn 13 they're starting already to individually monitor everything that they say and do and really do change and ditto for the boys. You know, they all cuddle up with their moms, and you know, suck their thumb, and you know, play with their hair. But by the time they're thir- and have friends, right. by the time they're in their thir- turning thirteen, turning they don't talk about best friends with with their boys anymore. You know, and then suddenly it's all about you know, I'm a rugged individual, and I can go it alone, and and it really does. It's, it's like cracking open the goodness in people and replacing it with something else. I mean, I know that sounds pretty depressing, but it was really startling to me to read that. And then when I hear what you say about how these kids feel about themselves in school, it does seem that you know, the schools could have a real, be real change agents in yeah. this.
1: They have to. We have to be um, aware that this socialization we're talking about, with, with respect to gender. So you know, we, there's a lot of awareness of what we call toxic masculinity. Right, this idea that to be a man is to be dominant, to be aggressive, to be alone, to not be emotional, and we see men pay the consequences for that. Uh, that that version of masculinity. And I think conversely, we see in girls what you described, that loss of confidence and that self-consciousness, particularly concerns about their appearance. When schools are aware of the tendencies, they can also counter those tendencies by creating the opportunities for children to be themselves without being encumbered by those stereotypes and those limitations. So we spend a lot of time studying schools for boys around the country, and New York City now has a number of them, and not all of them are good, and I'd say part of it is because many of them think they're going to raise them into real men, and they end up becoming that kind of toxic uh, masculine environment uh, where it is a lot of bullying, a lot of harassment, particularly kids who are gay or queer, uh, identified, but we also found schools where the opposite is occurring, where there's a strong sense of community, where there is an intentional Effort to cr- try and promote these other kinds of, uh, of values, and one, uh, I was talking to one principal in Chicago who uh, he had been led to believe, well, boys are active, therefore they are physical learners. So if a kid threw a raised his hand, he would throw a football to the kid so they could catch, and supposedly that would get them more engaged. And then he started realizing, well, some kids would not raise their hands because they couldn't catch. Right? <laughs> and they'd be more embarrassed by, 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 by dropping the ball. And he said, I was that kid. I don't know why I believed that that would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so I think what we have to do is broaden the narrative about what does it mean to be a person? What does it mean <laughs> to be? Uh, and, and so we can allow kids to be themselves without uh, these kinds of social pressures that are put upon them that often, I think, take a real toll.
0: You know, I went to an all-girls school uh, all the way up through high school, and I know, you know, now in retrospect, of course, I I know myself well enough to know that I probably would not be the person that I am today if I had gone to a co-ed school. I don't know if it's true for boys' schools, but I do think, you know, based on my own experience, that being in an all-girls school really does mitigate that point and period in your in your life where. You stop being yourself because you're in a you, you want to be appealing to the boys in the class or you know this kind of stuff and it doesn't stop the mean girls syndrome which is the other aspect right. of that and I, there's and there's a, a chapter in this book about the the mean boys club right. so it it doesn't solve all ills but you know. It is something to, yeah, in terms of your understanding of educational structures, what do you think about the boys' school, girl school thing?
1: You know, the, it's very clear girls do benefit a lot of times. If you look at simply science and math leadership, girls who go to all girls' schools or all female colleges are more likely to pursue those careers hmm. than uh, those who go into co-ed settings. And I think uh, it doesn't mean that we should all be putting our kids into single gender schools. It does mean that we need to be aware of the ways in which the gender norms can limit other kids. And not just girls, even some boys as well, because it tends to be certain boys will dominate in those environments. And so I would say that while it's clear that that there are benefits for girls, it's much less clear that there are benefits for boys. Boys, um, it tends to be that when you emphasize things like competition and hierarchy what you end up with is more domination and more of the kind of bullying that we've seen. And, and we've you know heard about it in places like West Point and other places. So mm-hmm. I, I think um, it, you know some people say, that, well, this is running count. We're going to turn our boys into <coughs> wimps. And, and I, I say that what we need to, to be aware of is that part of what happened with the women's movement did for, for girls, if you talk to the average girl today and ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? you're gonna be less likely to hear girls feel they're limited Mm -hmm. in what they can aspire to. There's been nothing similar for boys in terms of a change in how we think about what it means to be a boy or a man. Mm -hmm. Gradually, there's been some changes. I would bet if you talk to a lot of the men here, most of the men here, especially the younger men, do a lot more chores than their fathers did, right? Or a lot more, not all, okay, I didn't see too many. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I didn't see <laughs> too many hands go up here.
1: <laughs> more involved with, uh, directly involved with raising their children mm-hmm. uh, than, than perhaps their fathers would. So you see some gradual changes, but it's very, very slow. And the consequences for men, because we tend to think, well, men benefit from a society where men dominate. Well, no, the, the signs are real clear that a lot of men are suffering. Men who are alone live a lot less uh, long than men who are married. <laughs> Marriage is really good for men, it turns out. How about women? (laughs) Statistically. I'm not sure about women. How about women who live alone? (laughs) Women who who live alone do as well (laughs) as women who are married. (laughs) But men really benefit from not being isolated. But we don't teach men how to be in relation with others without there being domination.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah you know it all seems so overwhelming this crisis of connection and it permeates every single thing that we, that we do as humans and it permeates every activity in the world you know it, and we talk about the consequences of this crisis of connection it they're they're just they're manifest there's so many is it possible that these small incremental steps that are taking place in schools and in community programs can have the butterfly effect over time and that this you know, will eventually break down this crisis? And do we have time to wait?
1: I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I, just, I do know that part of what we have to do is we have to do a better job of acknowledging and recognizing when these, that pursuit of our common humanity is taking place and, the, and what we accomplish, because I think we don't see it. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. During the last Ebola crisis, as you may recall, there was uh, a lot of fear that uh, it started out in three West African countries. The fear was, was that it would spread quickly and become a pandemic. We were ice quarantining health workers at the airports because uh, we were afraid it was going to spread. And it, so it was fear was the dominant narrative, particularly in this country, even though we didn't have Ebola. <laughs> it was in West Africa. The way Ebola was, was countered was there were doctors including from this country, but from other parts of the world, who went to uh, Liberia and other countries like that, and started to educate people about how to deal with the sick, how to deal with um, uh, the the dead, and created a healthcare system where there was none. Mm -hmm. And within two months, the the crisis was abated without a vaccine. And what that shows you is that when when there's trust, when there's education, uh, that you can actually take on even big problems that seem uh, so insurmountable. I'll give you just one other example. Uh, there was uh, Richmond, California, up in the San Francisco Bay Area, one, one of the most violent cities in the country at one point, point. and they were at a loss what to do, with such a high homicide rate. And so uh, a friend of mine who's a criminologist got together with a community organizer, and he said, I have an idea. He said, statistically, I can predict who's going to get killed. Because the people most likely to get killed are also the mo- people most likely to do the killing. They're the same people. He says, and, and they have a profile. He said, "Let's bring them together." And so they convened about 50 of the people they call them the shooters at the time. Hmm. and they engaged in conversation about their lives and about the need to reduce the violence. And it, uh, they decided that they would come up with a project where they would invest in those people so that they become the peacemakers in hmm. the community. And within a year, the homicide rate plummeted Hmm. in the city. Now, Richmond's a smaller city, and whether or not you could do that in a big city like Chicago is, is, I think, a a big question. But the point is that we have examples that we don't don't give the attention they deserve, that we could learn from. Um, Because what those examples show us is that when we come together and problem solve, we can find ways to creatively approach some of these problems that right now just make us feel overwhelmed. And, you know, I, I, I know the feeling. You know, we hear about a tragedy, we just, it's so depressing, let's turn the channel, let's watch sports, because uh, this is too depressing. But we know it doesn't go away. And so I think the alternative is to figure out, okay, how do we come together uh, with our neighbors, with, uh, with others, to begin to think creatively about how to solve some of these problems.
0: One of the things I read in the book really stuck with me, and it was a phrase, we need to lift as we climb. Mm. And I think that all of the examples that you've given just just now are examples of lifting and climbing at the same time.
1: Yeah. And that, was, and again, those are not new ideas. Those are, you know, the, um, been around for a long time, but we we haven't, acknowledge the importance of that, of a society that takes care of the weak and the vulnerable, a society that, we live in a rich country, we should be able to take care of our our elderly, we should, I live in Los Angeles, we have more homeless people than any city in the country, and, and we now have bonds to provide housing, but nobody wants the housing in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. so, so the alternative is instead of the housing, you're gonna have the person sleeping outside your door, <laughs> and urinating there too. Uh, so what we have to do is, Figure out how do we bring people together so they can see we do have another way forward. I don't want to pretend it's easy. I do want to say that there are enough examples around the country, around the world, showing us it, it can happen, mm-hmm. and I think it's building on those that allows us to counter this tension.
0: I think this is a good time to open it up to a few questions from the audience because um, that always sparks some conversation too. So, man in the back, your your hand went up first, so
2: about the distinction between uh, the lust for power and the way we ignore the need for cooperation. We live in a culture where power has become what people strive for. I mean, if we look at our movies, if we look at our popular culture, it's all about superheroes that have tremendous power. And we reinforce that all over the place. I mean, money, wealth, it's all about power rather than cooperation. So I'm sure that, I haven't read the book, I'm sure that you've probably addressed that in there, but how did we get there? How did we get to this place where cooperation has sort of become so unimportant in our lives and power has become so overdetermined?
1: I think those tendencies have been around for a long time. Uh, that they're, they're not new, that that kind of valorization of power, of wealth, of and all the ability to dominate others that comes with it. I think what's happened in recent times is just the counter-narrative, the counter-impulse towards community, towards solidarity, has just diminished in importance. It has not been sustained. And so as a result, we're, this is where we're ending up. And so, you know, I, I think the easiest thing is say, well, we just erect the light, elect the right person and they'll solve it. <laughs> I think that's a cop-out. I think that we can't just think that a single individual can solve this. It's going to take collective action at many levels um, to begin to change that and to reinforce this idea that there's actually greater sense of joy and happiness that comes from these bonds of solidarity than from us being on our own, pursuing our own individual dream and and interest. Uh, But I'd say it's, it's, you know, between hope and fear... Uh, fear is powerful, <laughs> uh, I, I think it would be naive to, to not recognize how powerful fear is as a, as a motivator, but hope is powerful too, and I think we have to point to the examples and give them the attention. There was an article in the uh, paper today about a community in France that um, was very, if you read the t- article, a very depressed community, one of the highest unemployment rates in France, and they're focusing on the environment, they're focusing on treating immigrants like neighbors, and they're finding that this is actually a path forward for this community where there's been none. And so there are enough examples out there uh, that let us know there is another way. The question is, can we as individuals uh, do something more than simply hope that uh, things will get better? Because I don't think by themselves they will.
0: You, You had a question here. America and other cultures have been over the last several hundred years very agrarian and close to nature. What do you think the effect of the lack of nature has been in the isolation and depression that some people have had?
1: Well, there's research showing that it it hasn't impacted the ways in which we've become so detached from nature, from land, uh, from the production of our food. It reinforces this this way, this kind of world we live in, where we are again cut off from what sustains us. And if you look at the most industrial societies, the most urban societies, is where you find this kind of atomization is greatest. Less so in rural areas. I want to romanticize rural areas because there are a lot of challenges out there in rural, (laughs) especially rural America right now. But I, I would say it is part of the problem. But it's also pointing to where there's a solution. So I could take you to a school right now in Berkeley, California. Well, actually, Hayground probably does this, too, right here in, in Bridgehampton, where the kids produce the food, the kids cook the food, and serve each other. Alice Waters, the famous restaurateur, started this the Edible Schoolyard. And to see, you know, you see 8-year-olds with a big cutting knife. I say, aren't they worse? No, they're not using the knife. <laughs> but the connection they have with the whole process of growing and of eating healthy food. And you see, you know, how many of you have kids that struggle with eating vegetables? Not those kids, because they grow the vegetables. Mm. Uh, So there are, again, ways in which we can counter this that aren't that complicated, but we have to acknowledge that that's part of the problem, that's part of what we need to do.
2: Yeah, right here. Hi, good evening, thank you for your remarks tonight. So um, I'm curious, since you've had a chance to be in a lot of different educational environments, what your opinion is of the Catholic school model? So my kids attended a Catholic school in New York City that was multi-ethnic, multi-racial. Uh, and they seem to not have some of the problems that you've talked about and I'm sure you've seen that in your work So I'm interested to hear your opinion
1: So I would say which Catholic school <laughs> You know, I mean because I, mean, I would say that for example, I've worked closely with Crystal Ray schools I'm not sure if you're familiar with that model. Uh, I, I think it's a great model because kids learn for example service They learn uh, to work together on common projects. So that's built into the ethos of that school. I could also name some Catholic schools where that's not necessarily part of their tradition. so. But I I think I can find examples. Uh, My wife and I were talking about kibbutz in in Israel that were based on very similar traditions. So you can find them in different cultures, in different contexts, in different religions. And again, what we need to do is to see it, learn from it, tell others about it so they know. It doesn't have to be the way we've made it. You know, right now, because of the school shootings, so many schools are so worried about keeping schools safe that they literally have armed guards, metal detectors, surveillance cameras. Uh, there was a case in Fresno where the uh, pr- the superintendent ordered a man in a ski mask to come in with an assault rifle for a drill. It freaked everybody out. Uh, now they're talking about firing him. <laughs> 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 but, but what I think we don't, and, and I don't want to at all minimize how the, the fear we have about this happening, and, and there are need there is a need for... Real controls and making sure that you don't just let anybody into a building. At the same time, what we know is that if kids trust you, they'll let you know if there's a problem. In each of these cases of mass shootings, kids knew that kid had a problem, mm-hmm. right? And some, but they didn't want to snitch, or that there were no resources in place to provide counseling. The kid is Stolman Douglas. People knew this child had seen his father die and his mother die. This kid should needed help. And uh, who knows if we could have prevented that incident. So I think there are Catholic schools, but there are many other schools as well that we could learn from that do build that culture of care and of community.
0: He's got the mic right right there, and then you can pass it to uh, your partner right when you're done.
1: Thanks for your comments. Um, clearly the big battle right now is the, the battle between the conservative right and the, and the liberal left. Isn't that at the biggest part of what we're looking at now is that there's a side that's trying to discipline, and there's a side that's not try, that's trying to liberalize values. Isn't that the, the real problem here? I think that's that's one way in which the problem takes place. Right? Um, I think you know, it, guns, abortion. We can name the issues that are the big polarizing issues that divide us. I get to travel around the country, including into a lot of red states and areas that are very pro-Trump, and you know, once you, I mean, I I would never talk about this at a Trump rally, but (laughs) I'll I'll give you an example, I spoke at a, uh, I I gave a talk recently at, in Santa Barbara, at a college at UC Santa Barbara, and I didn't know while I was giving the talk that there were MAGA protesters outside, but there was food outside, and so the organizers invited the MAGA protesters to eat, and they ate, and they said, would you like to go hear the lecture? And many of them came inside and sat in the audience and afterwards asked me questions. And some of them took my number. And, and the guy said to me, after, he said, you know, they were MAGA protesters outside. That's who that lady was. I said, really? She was very nice. <laughs> and, uh, I, I say that because sometimes the politics, it reinforces the divisions and prevents us from seeing what we have in common. Turned out that that same woman was a teacher. And so although politically we might be very far apart on education, not so far apart. So I think it's about finding where do we have connections that cut across these political divides mm-hmm. that allows us to begin to figure out, okay, how do we move forward? Because our politics has prevented us from solving our problems. It, 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 you know, I would say politics is, is one of our biggest problems <laughs> <laughs> uh, in this country, and, and not just at the national level. State, local level as well. Sometimes at the local level, I see a difference. I'll give you one example. I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oklahoma has more children in child care, uh, in, in high quality preschool than any other state, right? Oklahoma. And I asked the governor, how come? He said, well, because we've seen the research and we know when you educate children when they're small, it benefits them throughout their lives. I said, well, how come the other states don't know this? <laughs> how come only Oklahoma knows? So I was in, in Tulsa, and some of you may know in 1924 there was a race riot. What well, shouldn't even be called a race riot? They burned Greenwood, which was the black community, killed many of the residents there. And I was given a tour of Greenwood by a member of the city council who was a Republican retired police officer named Lucky. And he took me around, he said, he took me to show me, he said, this is where the community got burned, this is what we built. He says, this is not reparation this community deserves reparations for what happened. He says, but what now we are," describe efforts to create after-school programs and other services in the community. He says, we've got to do this because our future is tied together. So this was, I didn't ask him these things. He vol- offered these things. Very much a Republican. I'm sure he'll vote for Trump in the next election. But he was still able to see that these neighbors of his deserve much more than they've received.
2: I've got so many questions, really, <laughs> in my head. I don't know which of the five to ask you. But i, I just spent some time on the beach with a with a 20-year-old young man, son of a friend, and he spent the entire time while there was a drumming circle going on. <laughs> he spent the entire time on his phone, staring down with big headphones on his ears. He didn't look up once, never made eye contact with me, let alone anyone else. And then you have like the the people in Miami who had the school shooting, and they. Rallied and became became. I mean, it, it was it was awe striking. You know, what? How could I'm trying to reconcile millennials and how like, you know, they're they're at once they're they're these isolated people that you talk about, and then the they're also the this the the future, the saviors. The I, it's I can't figure them out.
1: Yeah, I, I'm having trouble myself, and I teach them, <laughs> and but and I I would say that um you know that the, the fixation with the screens, uh, that starts early, they, we have a lot of evidence, it, it is addictive and it is having a real harmful effect on the, not just the brain but the development of, of our kids. So those, those are trends I am very worried about and I think we should all be. Um, they, it results, it reinforces that kind of uh, every person for themselves. We think we're connected because we got a lot of likes on social media but in fact we haven't seen another person uh, or interacted with another person for hours. So. I, I, hope <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. You know, w- w- teaching at UCLA, where I'm teaching that generation, I, I'm encouraged over and over again by the, many of the young people I meet who, despite, uh, I, I had a young man, he came to me, he was valedictorian of his high school, undocumented in San Diego. He came to UCLA, doing extremely well, and he comes to me, he's in my class, he says, uh, I, I'm going to drop out. I said, why are you going to drop out? You're doing so well. He says, because my mother cleans houses, and she's sick. And I, I feel guilty that I'm here as a student while my mother's cleaning houses. And you know, and, I, and I had to talk him through that. I said, OK, got to help your mom. But getting this education is going to enable you to help her even more than if you go back now to clean houses. But so I, what I see in these young people is they need much more guidance, much more mentorship, Uh, than many of them receive, Um, and a lot of times they may not know they want it or need it, but I think that, to me, is the way we counter that tendency towards being isolated on that screen.
0: There's a question here, um, sir? You. Yes. (laughs) You waited patiently.
1: Thank you for your comments, uh, Pedro. Uh, My question is that I feel personally that our country dropped the ball on education with the influx of so many Hispanic kids coming. I don't think that they were prepared for that many kids to be coming into the school system. How do you feel about that? I think it's a huge challenge, Uh, but it's not a a new challenge. Uh, We faced this in the 19th century when the immigrants were Irish and Italian and Eastern European, right? Um, And we, you know, uh, I'll just say the obvious. Immigration's always been good for America. There are whole towns right now that would be dead were it not for the immigrants. Uh, the Schenectady, New York, right? Schenectady, New York is a de- very depressed town, so it's better days 100 years ago. Uh, the mayor of Schenectady decided a few years ago that the secret to reviving Schenectady would be to recruit Guyanese immigrants. I don't know why he chose Guyanese, but he had a lot of them in his church. So he said, come to Schenectady, you can buy a house for $30,000. And they did. And Schenectady is going through a rebirth. Now, I don't know what they do in Schenectady. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I do know that when we open up and we embrace that we can find ways. Because you know, unlike Europe, America has always been a place where, like it or not, people assimilate quickly. In, in most immigrant families, you talk to these kids, maybe their parents don't speak English, but the kids do. And they're becoming Americans very quickly. What we need to make sure is, is that they get opportunities, they get educated, so they can continue to contribute. Because right now, be given the demographics, we're going to have older white people dependent on younger brown people to keep Social Security afloat, right? to support our whole economy. We are in this together, and it's it's the inability to see how interdependent we are, that's our biggest challenge.
0: Okay, we can take one more question over here. So, um, who's had their their uh, hand up the longest?
1: <laughs> Bonnie got it. Bonnie got it.
2: Okay, well, I don't know if I have my hand up the, the, <laughs> the longest, but certainly, I mean, I'm like, the young woman here that said that there's so many questions because you hit upon so many things because I think that not looking at the color of each other's skin like places and these types of forms help us to be aware of our differences and to talk about it and that's so important that's one form the other thing when you talked about like schools and th- things of that, what we do at the center is try to instill into, I've, I've found that to instill character building, integrity, morals, um, affirmations, having the kids to speak about their positiveness in them, um, you know, going back to nature, cooking, um, soul garden, going back to what was before and where it was a village. But when we look at our children of color, especially our black men, And our black boys, you know, I don't know, you know, it seems that to me that they are struggling a lot more than others. I could be wrong, but I don't know, you know, what suggestions do you have? You even hit upon, you know, a lot of people don't know. I'm the chair of the um, housing authority and just the battle that we went with with building 28 units of a of rental apartments in Spionk and Tuckahoe, which is needed because you have to have the people here to work to, you know, take care of everyone else. You know, I don't know how we get past these barriers and things of that. So I've said a lot, but if you can just touch upon, because this is a fight that, you know, we're fighting that I know I'm fighting every day yeah. over at the childcare center and trying to instill into our children, trying to instill into our community, trying to instill into our young people you know, how do we, you know, what, what are your words on how do we, how do we deal, deal with all of these things and make a difference?
1: I, I, I don't want to pretend like I have the solution to all this. I, I would say, though, again, calling attention, showing us where are we getting progress, right? where are we solving problems, because we don't do that. Think about this. You know, we've heard so much about crime and murder in Chicago. The largest housing product in the country is in Queens hasn't had a murder in over three years. Why? Queensbridge Housing Projects. Well, they have a group of ex cons <laughs> called the Peace Builders who go into that community and they will do work the police can't do in resolving conflicts. And people will call on them because they know them and trust them. Now, many people never heard of that because that doesn't, murders get news. No murder doesn't get news. <laughs> right? But uh, I, I think. There are enough examples like this that remind us that when we, are, when we build trust, when we build community, we can actually solve problems. And the schools, I, I do, I've done a lot of work on schools for black boys. And the schools that are succeeding in serving that population succeed because they let the kids be themselves. Free from the stereotypes, free from the judgments, so they can grow and be just like any other kid. Right? And which is what all kids should have a right to do. So it is, I think, again, acknowledging where that happens that allows us to see that it's possible. Because I think right now, that's what we suffer from, a vision of what the future could be. We, we have this kind of dystopian view that's prevailing uh, that I think is making us more and more. I mean, you think about most sci-fi movies we see, they don't pretend a very optimistic future. And, and we can create that dystopia, or we can work to create something very different.
0: So I am gonna close this with a question of my own, uh, which comes again from uh, something that I read in the book about uh, one of the programs of ways in which one can build community and build trust one-on-one. And it was a project that was uh, devised by people who went into communities and asked a very simple question to people they were talking to. And this was the question. What is it like being you? <laughs> yeah. So, what is it like being you?
1: <laughs> being me? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I, I hadn't thought about that. you <laughs> tricked me with that one. Um, <laughs> I gotta have something up my sleeve. <laughs> you know, I, I, as I said, I get a chance to, to travel, you know, not just throughout the country, but and in, in, throughout the world and meet different people. And that gives me actually optimism about the future. It allows, because I do, I am able to see and build connection with people of very different backgrounds. And that, to me, makes me a lot less pessimistic than watching the news, uh, which I do uh, listen to uh, quite a bit. So I I would say for for me, uh, my hope, and and part of the reason why I've, I've been in education for so long is I think education is the key. Uh, that if we can find ways to ensure that children not only get a chance to learn, but get a chance to grow and, and, and develop and to dream about what is possible, that we can, in fact, change the course we're on. Uh-huh. But it, it's not just going to happen. Uh, we're going to have to do some work. And I think that's what concerns me, is that the comfortable among us just hope somebody else do the work. <laughs> and and I think we should have to ask ourselves, okay, what am I doing? Um, how am I contributing? Uh, can I close with one more story? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, working with a school in Oakland, and I was told this by the staff at the school. They had a student who was a known gang leader, and he came to the counselor and told him, said, uh, I am actually going to switch genders, and I'm going to come to school tomorrow as a, as a girl. And um, I'm letting you know now because there could be some problems. Because <laughs> the people that I've been close to, my, my gang is going to, they, they might try to come get me. So the counselor is very concerned. She goes to the s- staff and tells them this kid is going to switch genders and it could be violence up here. And they are, uh, immediately the staff says, let's ban him from the school. You know, uh, we don't want violence. Let's mm-hmm. call the police and get this kid taken away. While they're in the meeting thinking about calling the police, kids come in and say, we have this under control. They say, what do you mean? He said, we're going to, he's, gonna, he's been kicked out of his house, he's going to live with us, we're going to escort him to school every day, and it's not a problem. <laughs> and they said, wow. <laughs> the kids have solved it. So sometimes the kids can solve things too. And we have to be, have enough faith that we give them the resources, the opportunities they can come up with some solutions that the adults haven't been able to come up with.
0: I love that we ended up on an optimistic note. Thank you so much. This was really, really wonderful.